Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, thanks for that welcome, Charles. It's wonderful to be able to fellowship with so many of the saints here in Pretoria. As I was preparing for this evening, it was it just reminded me that out of the the five Christological events, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is surely the one that gets the shortest thrift. Uh, when it comes to the, the birth of Christ at Christmas, we give it a great deal of emphasis. At Easter, of course, the death and the burial of Christ gets great emphasis for good reason. The resurrection of Christ gets great emphasis. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we preach about that a great deal. But the ascension of Christ is one that is uh, sorely lacking in God's churches today. I was listening to a, a well-known speaker, I won't mention him, uh, but he has been pastoring in a church in America for 40 years, the same church. And I listened to a sermon of his on the ascension, and he had to acknowledge that in 40 years, he had only ever preached on the ascension of Christ three times in 40 years. And uh, before I throw stones at him, I had to go through my own preaching record at, at Mildersdorf Union Church. The last five years, I haven't preached on it at all. So uh, in the Lord's uh, beautiful providence, uh, I end a series of sermons in Luke's gospel this coming Sunday. And so I get to preach the ascension twice in two weeks. Isaac has already uh, read the passage of scripture that I, I hope to open to you, but uh, since Luke has mention of the ascension in his gospel as well as in the book of Acts, I just want to read both those short portions. So Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 50 to verse 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And joy is the defining note of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And so it's great to be able to worship with you with great joy this evening. Then, of course, Acts chapter 1. And this is where I'm going to be ministering from this, this evening. Just verse 9 to 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. 
a few weeks ago, uh, many, many, many people all over the world, and I'm sure a, a good sprinkling of people here this evening, you were glued to your television sets to witness the coronation of King Charles III. There he was, seated on Arthur's seat, a chair that has been around for over 700 years and used for such purposes. And this stone of schoon on which Scottish kings had been crowned before the, uh, before the 10th century was brought, this 300-pound stone, red sandwood, was brought all the way from Scotland and put into Arthur's seat in preparation for this coronation. And many people gushed over British pageantry at its best. And uh, there is no doubt, the Brits can put on a great show, can't they? they? They really know how to do that. But if you were watching that coronation service, I hope, I hope that you sensed a great deal of disappointment at the same time. Because here this man who was being anointed as king, uh, the head of the Church of England, this man's not even a believer. He's not even a Christian. And he's, and he's gone on record as saying, I don't want to be regarded as the defender of the faith, the Christian faith, but I want to be recognized as the defender of faith in general. I hope you were disappointed at the same time as being enthralled in pageantry. At the same time, I hope you were left saddened by the fact that to a two-hour service that was saturated with Scripture and Scripture imagery. And King Charles himself was given a Bible, of all things. It was given to him by clergy who behind the scenes are currently working to undermine the authority of Scripture. I hope there was sadness as well. But this evening we celebrate a different coronation. We celebrate the coronation of King Jesus. And there is no, there is no disappointment in our, in our minds this evening. There is no sort of residual sadness in our hearts as we contemplate the ascension of Christ and his coronation as king. I want us to think about three thoughts this evening. Uh, and they all come from verse 9 to verse 11 of Acts chapter 1. The first lesson that our text teaches us, it's self-evident. It's obvious. But I think it's important to stress it nonetheless. And the first point is that Jesus has gone away. And you might say, oh, duh, of course he's gone away. Didn't he have to go back to his father? And yes, of course, indeed he did. My question this evening is, why did it have to happen in this way, in this particular way? Why did his body have to rise into the air and through the clouds? I mean, it's not as if heaven is up there. We don't believe that, do we? You don't have to get into a space rocket and be blasted out of the earth's atmosphere to get to heaven. I mean, you'll remember that... Uh, the first man in space, that foolish remark that has been attributed to him at least. 
You know, here he was, this first Russian cosmonaut, 1961, I think it was, Yuri Gagarin. He gets blasted into space. He's the first man to exit the Earth's atmosphere. First man in space. He orbits the Earth for about one and a half hours, and then he returns, he returns again. And at least it's attributed to him to have said, I was in space, and I didn't see God. There's no evidence of God in space whatsoever. There is no God up here. And that's quite silly, of course, because you cannot get to God in a space rocket. So so why did Jesus have to rise in the air in such a dramatic kind of way? I mean, he could have said, goodbye to his disciples and vanished. He could have done that, not so. He, he, could have, he could have just gone around the corner and never be seen again. So why is his exit from the earth so dramatic? There must, there must be a reason for it. And I don't think the answer is very hard to find. It's the only, only way to make it crystal clear to the disciples and to us that Jesus has gone away, that he's no longer on the earth. And, and, and both Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 are at pains to stress this. Luke, Luke is like pedantic. Luke chapter 24, verse 51, we read, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven, taken up into heaven. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, there's a fourfold repetition in those two verses. Into heaven, into heaven, into heaven. Not only that, but if you read Acts chapter 1, there's a threefold repetition. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 11, where it says concerning Jesus, he was taken up, taken up taken up. The repetition of these phrases makes it crystal clear that Jesus is no longer on earth. He's gone up. He's he's been taken up into heaven. So so, so why is this stressed in Acts chapter 1? Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. I, I, I tried to do that this way, this week. It's 40 days since the resurrection. And throughout that 40-day period, Jesus has been appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing at at regular intervals. And I'm sure the disciples probably thought to themselves, this is the new normal. This is how things are going to be from here on out. Something had to happen to change that thinking in their minds. They needed to know that there was going to come a time when there would be no more resurrection appearances. And the next time they get to see Jesus is either when they die and go to heaven and see Jesus, or when he comes again at the end of the earth to wrap up history. They needed to find out there was a a termination in Jesus' ministry. If they didn't, if the disciples did not grasp this, there would be this great temptation on their part to spend the next 
weeks, months, years, decades, looking for Jesus. And you think I'm being silly? I'm not. I'll prove that to you from the Old Testament. Remember when Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot? The only person who gets to witness that event is Elisha, his sidekick. His sidekick. You can read about it in, in 2 Kings chapter 2. And in verse 15 of that chapter, the company of the prophets come to Elisha and they say to Elisha, here are 50 men. Let's send these 50 men out to search for Elijah because they hadn't seen Elijah go. Only Elisha had. Let's send these 50 guys out. Perhaps they will find him. And Elisha basically said to them, you're wasting your time because I've seen Elijah go up into heaven. But they insisted so strongly. They said, perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and, and set him down on some mountain or in, or in some valley. And so Elisha's embarrassed, and eventually he agrees to these company of the prophets sending men out to look for Jesus. And they go, and they spend three days looking up the length and breadth of Israel. Can we find, sorry, not looking for Jesus, they're looking for Elijah. And they spend three days looking and they can't find him. They come back to Elisha and they say, we can't find him. And Elisha says, well, didn't I tell you? We should have listened to me in the first place. Three days wasted looking for Elijah. Three days which, have been, which could have been used more profitably for kingdom work. And the, and the Lord doesn't want his disciples to do the same thing. And you think I'm being silly, go back to the medieval ages. You had thousands of people, thousands, spending year after year after year searching for what? The Holy Grail. We must find that cup that the Lord Jesus drank from at his last supper. Now, if people would go to such great lengths to find the Holy Grail, what lengths do you think they would go to to look for Jesus? They would spend years searching the length and breadth of Israel. Maybe he's secluded in some cave in the Dead Sea region. No, 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 that would be foolish. What a waste of time that would be. And so that's why in Acts chapter 1 we get this repetition of into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, taken up, taken up, taken up. The disciples needed to know Jesus has gone away. That's the first point. Second lesson we learn from our text is that Jesus now reigns as king. That is the main doctrinal significance of the ascension of Jesus, what theologians would call the exaltation of Christ. Remember that great Christological hymn in, in Philippians chapter 2? It starts with the self-humbling of the Son of God who leaves glory and, and, and is made man and then lives as a man. And, and then the self-humbling ends by the cruel humiliation of the cross. And then the humiliation ends and it changes tone, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's referring to Christ's exaltation and his reign. And I would like to suggest to you this evening that that is perhaps the reason for the mention of clouds in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. You know, for many years, I thought, I thought that the reason that, that the reason for the clouds in, in verse 9 was merely to obscure Jesus from view. He went up and up and up and through the clouds until the clouds hid him from view. That's what I thought verse 9 meant. And the version of the Bible that I read from this evening perhaps perpetuated that misunderstanding. Because the NIV reads as follows. It says, after he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. But the ESV puts it differently. The ESV puts it correctly, where it says a cloud took him out of their sight. There's a big difference between those two. The the language of the ESV seems to suggest that the cloud actually took him away, that the clouds were the means of transporting Jesus to heaven itself. It's like you, you get an important dignitary who's, uh, who's sp- staying in a hotel and you want to pick this guy up to take him to his meeting. You rock up in a, in a Cadillac or a, a limousine to take him to his meeting. Or if his meeting is overseas, you get him a Gulfstream jet. He's got to go in style. Well, in our passage, the Lord travels to heaven in style. He travels on the clouds of heaven. Psalm 104 verse 3 says the following about God. It says, he makes the cloud his chariot and he rides on the wings of the wind. I want to put it to you this evening. I want to suggest it to you this evening. Is it not possible? Can I be a little bit more bold? And and can I not say, is it not probable that the mention of the clouds in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 as this means of transportation should remind you of a very, very important Old Testament text. And that text is Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And verse, and verse 14, because that is the Old Testament account of the ascension and the coronation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, get this, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never 
be destroyed. So here is Jesus. He's being transported in style on the crowds and he's on the, on the clouds and, he, and he's crowned as king. He sits down at the right hand of his father in heaven. That's what the apostle Paul says. That's what he, that's what he refers to in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, verse 21, when he speaks about God raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and uh, authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given in this present age and in the age to come. Paul could have said, Christ has been crowned king. Could have said it that way. This is what the apostle Peter is referring to in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, when he says concerning Jesus Christ that he has gone into heaven and he is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Christ is king. This is what the ascension is loudly, loudly proclaiming today. And what an incredible comfort that is to you and to me as you go about your work this coming week, knowing that Christ, he is the ruler of the universe. He is king of creation. What, what comfort that gives to you this week and the crises that maybe you face next week. Just to remind yourself, hang on a second, it can get quite bad, but Christ reigns. Christ is over all. That's a great comfort to us. There was a, there was a great, uh, not a great, but it was a Catholic friar in the late 15th century in Florence, Italy. His name was Giolomo um, Savonarola. And uh, Savonarola was this uh, friar who was well known for preaching uh, about a flood of divine judgment that was going to come upon the city of Florence if the people would not repent of their sins. And Savonarola encouraged the people in Florence to attend a bonfire of the vanities. And he would have this huge bonfire and the people were encouraged to come and burn all their gambling artifacts, all their pornographic material, burn it. Well, Savonarola was excommunicated from the Catholic Church for preaching against the Pope. And uh, later he was executed. In fact, next Tuesday is the 525th anniversary of his execution. But before he dies, he says this, get ascension in, in your mind, get the coronation of King Jesus in your mind. But his, his closing words on earth are these. He says this, he who believes that Christ Rules above need not fear what happens here below. Christ rules as king. That should encourage us. But of course, one of the most encouraging aspects of Christ's present heavenly reign is the knowledge that we have someone in heaven. We have a man. We have a glorified man in heaven, who is interceding on our behalf before the Father. Isn't that an encouraging thought to meditate on? 
Romans chapter 8, verse 34, we are simply reminded that Christ Jesus who died, more than this, he was raised to life, is now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says the same thing. Therefore he, Christ, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always, always lives to intercede for them. I love the story from the American Civil War. Uh, One of the great Confederate generals was uh, Stonewall Jackson and uh, he had the misfortune of being shot by one of his own troops. And uh, as his body lay in state in Richmond, Virginia, um, the governor gave a two-day period of mourning where thousands of soldiers could pass by and, you know, gaze upon their general one last time. And uh, the afternoon of the second day, when the, the sun was about to set, the marshal ordered the troops to shut the doors that led into the state chamber where Stonewall Jackson was lying in his coffin. And at that moment, as he's ordering the troops to do that, here comes up these steps is this soldier, this rather rough-looking soldier who's, who's barging his way up the steps, and he shakes a stump where there was once a right hand, a right arm. And he, and, and he, he loudly shouted out, By this right arm which I gave for my country, I demand the right to see my general one last time. And the marshal wanted to shove him down the steps, but the governor saw this and he he gave instructions to this marshal. And he said, "Let, let him in, let him in. He has one entrance by his wounds. What right does Jesus have to intercede for sinners like you and I before the Father today? What what right does he have? He doesn't come into the Father's presence. He doesn't shake his stump of a right arm. Doesn't do that. He simply comes into God's presence. And in the words that is quoted in Job chapter 33, he says, spare them. From going to the pit, I have found a ransom for them. That's the merits of Christ's shed blood. That's the merits of his death that he is pleading before the Father for you and for me if you are one of his children. That's the joy that we have tonight. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it's, it's kind of legal language that is being used, but it gets this idea of, of intercession. This is what the Apostle John says. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father. We have an advocate. That's legal language. One who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And there are some people, I hope you're not one of them, but there are some people who think that Jesus' intercession before the Father goes something like this. They probably think that Jesus enters into the presence of his Father and he says, good morning, Father. 
I represent Angus McKee, and my client is having a really bad week. He's, he's broken three promises that he made to you. He's violated umpteen dozen of your commands. He's son, he sinned a lot this week. He deserves to be punished. But Father, won't you just cut him a break? For my sake, just cut him some slack. Well, won't you do that? Just, just, just give him one more chance. And some people imagine the father replying to the son by saying, well, okay, for you, I'll give him one more chance. What's the problem with that line of reasoning? The problem is that Jesus has no case. No case whatsoever before the father. He's just pleading. He's He's just trying to tug on the father's emotional heartstrings. There's no case that he's presenting before his father at all. And we are left wondering when the father is going to say, enough, enough, there's no more chances, enough. I've had enough of Angus McKee. That's not how Jesus intercedes for the father, for you and for me, if you are one of God's children. He has a real case to present. And, and in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who turns the Father's anger away from us. And, and so the Lord Jesus Christ intercessionary ministry goes something like this. This would be more, more accurate. He probably goes into the Father's presence and he says, Father, Angus has done it again. He's blown it again. But I have died the death that he deserved to die. And I have lived the life that he ought to have lived. Angus has sinned and the demands are that the wages of sin is death but I've paid for those sins with my very blood. That's why if you read 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, it's very interesting the way it's, it says what it says. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's very interesting what John doesn't say. He doesn't say he is faithful and merciful. Although that is blessedly true as well, isn't it? We sing that lovely, lovely hymn, you know, our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. That is is a glorious truth. That's not what John says. He, He doesn't say he is faithful and loving, although that is also gloriously true. He says he's faithful and just. He's using legal terminology. Our advocate, our heavenly intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who rules as king, comes before the Father and says, on behalf of his children, it would be unjust for you to expect two payments for the same sin. And I've already paid for it. Therefore, Father, I'm not asking for mercy. 
I'm asking for justice. To not forgive would be unjust. That's the language our intercessor uses as he pleads your cause and my cause before the Father. I'm just amazed by that thought this evening. And so the first two thoughts, and I'll be very quick, the last. Jesus has gone away, but Jesus now reigns as king. What a, what a privilege. Third lesson is Jesus will return again. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. You should be scratching your head when you read verse 10. If you, if you don't scratch your head, you're not reading it correctly. Let me read it. The disciples, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has gone into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I think that the angels are asking a silly thing. They're making a silly request, at first glance at least. The reason why I say that is uh, this is only the third time in history that someone has been raised to heaven in this kind of a way. You know, there's Enoch, there's Elijah, but they haven't had a resurrection, and they weren't seated at God's right hand either. What the disciples witnessed that day was extraordinary. And I I defy any of you to to contradict me. If you and I had been there that day, you you would have stared up into the heavens as well. You wouldn't have been able to take your eyes off the clouds. So why do the angels issue a mild corrective? Well, perhaps what's happened here is Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ has, has raised, he was raised up and up and up he went and he's transported on the clouds into heaven itself. And perhaps he's already gone and the disciples are still staring up into empty space and they are transfixed. They can't move and the angels need to get them to change their perspective, get them to change their way of thinking. You know, perhaps they thought Jesus was going to return immediately. And if that was the case, you could be excused for staring up at the, at the sky. But you know, that's not going to happen. There is this delay between the ascension and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples need to get their perspective right. It's almost as if the angels are saying to these disciples, stop looking into heaven and start doing what Jesus has asked you to do. That's basically what the perspective needs to shift. Look at verse 8. What did the Lord Jesus Christ tell the disciples to do? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, forget about the sky And be about the unfinished task of getting this gospel message out to as many people as you possibly can. That's the the mild rebuke that is being issued that day. I heard a while back of two television networks in America. Where else? 
Daystar and uh, I think it's TBN, that have got their television cameras trained incessantly on the Mount of Olives. Cameras are always on the Mount of Olives. Why? We don't want to miss the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to be sure we can capture it on our film. And I'm looking, I'm saying, whatever happened to Revelation 1 verse 7? Which says, every eye will see him. Jesus, his first coming was in obscurity. He came in humiliation. But his second coming will not be in obscurity. It will not be in humiliation. His second coming would be visible. It will be personal. And it will be exceedingly glorious. While we wait for that great day, we should not sit with our television cameras trained on the Mount of Olives. No, we shouldn't be staring up at the sky. No, we should be about the business of being his witnesses in Pretoria, in Gauteng, in South Africa, to the ends of the earth. And we haven't been left without resources, have we? We haven't been left to do this in our own strength. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Luke chapter 24 says it the same way, but in different words. It says in verse 46, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So those three thoughts from Acts chapter 1. Jesus has gone away. Jesus now reigns as king. And Jesus will return again. Praise the Lord. Our Father in heaven, even as we reflect on these truths... Lord, it's easy for us to acknowledge with our lips that your son rules as king, that he governs this universe. But tomorrow when we wake up and the rand plummets and it's devalued by I don't know how much, we suddenly start to think differently. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our heads would get connected and they would both sing from the same hymn sheet, Christ is King. And we pray, O oh God, that you would also remind us that part of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, part of his kingly ministry is to intercede on our behalf. What a privilege to know that we, we have one in heaven, even as we speak, who's pleading our cause. Encourage us with these thoughts yet again this Ascension Day and equip us with enthusiasm and desire to go out and be your witnesses to the ends of the age. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.